0: It was a new year, 1995, and Stefan Carrington was a young man with a short criminal history who had just gotten out of prison. He had recently gotten married, a young father, and was training to be an EMT. After having paid his debt to society, his life was getting back on track. On the morning of January 2nd, 1995, Stefan's brother Mark stood outside of a lumberyard in Brooklyn as Shannon France and another man arrived. Mr. France pulled the 25, announcing a stick-up. As the other man robs customer, Hugh Keys, the store clerk tries to grab Mr. France's weapon and was shot. Mr. France loots the strongbox and the two men fled, leaving Mr. Keys alive. A confidential informant would tell the lead investigator, Detective Calabrese, the names of three men who were seen by the lumberyard at the time of the crime. Shannon France, Eddie West, and Mark Carrington. However, when he searched for Mark Carrington, Stefan popped up at the same address, and with his criminal record, Calabrese added his photo into an array. Hugh Keyes gave a shaky identification, and in the absence of any physical evidence whatsoever connecting him to the crime, Stefan went to trial right next to the trigger man, Shannon France. The Carringtons hired a lawyer to protect both of their sons, but it turned out to be to the detriment of one of them. Mark was never called to testify at trial, and 20 years later, finally free, Stephen Carrington is out on parole, but still fighting to clear his name of a crime that he simply didn't commit. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom.
1: Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search.
2: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
3: Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flum. That's me, I'm your host. And today we have a story and an outcome that we're going to hope that, uh, who knows, maybe somebody out there can be helpful with because we are fighting to prove the innocence of the man who's sitting right in front of me now, Stephen Carrington. Stephen, as I always say, I'm sorry you're here, but I'm happy you're here.
2: Well, thank you, but I'm happy that I'm here and having the opportunity to set the record straight and probably clear my name.
0: Yeah, that's what we're here for. Let's go back to that original fateful day, January 2nd,
2: 1995. Um, what happened that day in the lumber store? Um, basically, all of my knowledge of this saga or story that took place, I learned through reading trial minutes, from hearing from people in the street and things of that nature because, you know, I wasn't there when it took place. On that day, they said that two individuals entered the lumber yard an apparent robbery, which resulted to a homicide. One of the employee at the um, lumberyard tried to take a weapon from this individual, and subsequently this guy shot him twice, and ultimately um, he died. Eventually he died. Uh, the two individuals fled the scene. My brother was the lookout, and subsequently um, the person that is my co-defendant, Shannon, his girlfriend best friend is the one that gave his name, photos, and everything to the police. There's a third individual whose name was Eddie West, and I have to say that neither my brother or Eddie West was ever interviewed, questioned, sought after by the police department. So Eddie West was the other guy in the store? No, Eddie West was one of the individuals that they mentioned that was out on the corner during the time the robbery was committed. Okay. Shannon France, though, was he had some involvement in the crime. Is that right? Um, They f- found his fingerprints on the cash box inside the lumberyard. That's so, not a good sign. Yes, no. They didn't find yours? No, they have no physical evidence or anything linking me to the crime besides having a sibling who was mentioned to be outside with the individuals who was involved. So these guys go, they robbed the
0: lumberyard- And they shot a clerk named Lloyd Campbell Yes. both in the head and in the back. Yes. And then uh, they found the strong box. They looted it. The two guys fled the scene. Uh, Your brother was either there or not as a lookout. Whatever he was doing, he, he was apparently not in the store. That is correct. So how did your name come to be associated? Because it's sort of a leap to say, okay,
2: well, they got your brother. Now they're going to just go after you. Well, I could just tell you from the police reports, the officers, during the investigation, when they received these names and photos of these individuals, um, there was an address on the photo, which was a promotional photo. At the time, um, I had a recording studio, and we used to, you know, rent studio time out to individuals. One of the groups, Shannon, my co-defendant, he was an individual who was in the rap group which my brother was affiliated with a part of, and they had promotional photos up and down the avenue, the same avenue that these guys went and committed this crime on. It so happened that they committed a crime across the street from his girlfriend's business, and his girlfriend's best friend is the one that saw him out there and eventually gave his name in the photos to the police, to the detective Calabrese. When Calabrese was doing his investigation, all he did was run the address through the police system. And my name came back because I was paroled to that address. So when they discovered that I was on parole, the whole case shifted to me. Um, Detective Calabrese is quoted as saying that he had a gut feeling I was involved. He felt that I matched the description um, my brother was involved. He felt that if I wasn't involved, I knew something about it. And because I had a prior and I was on parole, they came for me.
0: But you matched the description of the actual shooter?
2: Um, No. Or the lookout? Um, No. Whose description did you match? He said I matched the individual who robbed another patron of this lumberyard, Mr. U. Keys. I didn't know what he was talking about. In my mind, I believe that eventually, whatever they were trying to do would, you know, resolve itself because I didn't have—I had nothing to do with any crime. This situation, you know, had me think about this one phrase, you know, and it always stuck with me that you—you you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Hmm. And because of my past is why I'm here today. Now, I'm not a goody two-shoe. I wasn't, and. That is only because I try to fit in with individuals. I wanted, you know, to be down. I brought up, my father's a pastor. I brought up in church. I went to church the majority of my life. And I wouldn't lie, you know, I hated church. I was forced to, to go every day. I want to say a worse experience, but just not to do what normal kids do was kind of tough for me. Because I was a, a free spirit. I like So when I was like 17, I tried to move out. And so I started to sell drugs with my best friend. And that's how I got into the life of criminality and things of that nature. And subsequently, I did get arrested for drug sale, robbery. And I went to Rackers Island and I had a traumatic experience. I got jumped, got stabbed, got robbed. And um, as time went on, I knew that this wasn't for me prison wasn't something that I wanted to do. It wasn't a lifestyle that I wanted to live. And if, you know, selling drugs and all these other stuff was going to lead me to prison, then I had to do away with that. And not just those activities, but also the people that I used to associate with. And that's what I did.
0: You were really putting your life on track
2: at this time, which is sort of an
0: added element of tragedy. You had gone through some training to be an EMT. Right? Yes, that's correct. Your young father. That's correct. And recently married. Recently married, yeah. So you had your whole life in front of you.
2: Yes. Um, I changed my life. I cut off all my friends. You know, I had a newborn. My daughter, she was only seven months when they took me from her. It's sickening. I mean, and let's set the
0: record straight by talking about your alibi, which is a bit of a sensitive topic. I mean, you were a married man,
2: but your alibi involves another woman, right? Sad to say, and unfortunately, the day that they accused me of committing this crime, I was in the hospital with my wife. And I was also with another female friend before I was in the hospital with my wife.
0: Right. Like you said earlier, you had a recording studio
2: set up in your parents' basement. A young lady came
0: to visit you there and spent the night. Yes. Now, unbeknownst to you, your daughter had developed an ear infection and was taken to the hospital that morning. Now, there's no cell phones back then. Your wife was calling around looking for you, and she gets a hold of your mother, who walks the phone to you downstairs. That's correct. You spoke with your wife, assured her that you were on your way, and then you shower and get the hell
2: out of there. When I got there, you know, basically my wife was just like, here, she's your responsibility now. I had it all. And um, so, you know, I did everything with her until the doctors wanted to come in. She had an ear infection, so they wanted to um, do an x-ray. Now, this is one of the things that baffle me, even to today with all the technology and stuff that they have. My hands got captured in this x-ray. When people read this case, really sit down and read this case, they wonder, how did you get convicted? But you had a solid alibi. At trial, one person testified against me, and I had four or five alibi witnesses that testified. The one person that testified against me, Mr. Yuki's. And I feel for him because I know that he's been duped. Because he told the 911 operator when he called them during the day that the crime was committed about being robbed, about the individual being shot, or what have you. And when they asked him to give a description of the individual, he told them that he couldn't. He said he never looked at the individual, that he never looked at the person that robbed him. Wow. Because he was afraid to, because he seeing what happened to the guy that got shot. He was afraid for his life. He also told that to the first police that came on the scene. But yet, here it is, Detective Calabrese is saying that this individual picked my picture up and said, this is the guy that robbed me. The district attorney is saying that the, the witness didn't say that. The witness said that I look like the individual that robbed him. But in all the police reports, it's saying that the witness said that I'm the guy that robbed him. But in court, the district attorney is saying that the witness said that I look like the guy that robbed him. And that if he seen me in person, he would be able to identify me. But here's the catch. The witness get on the stand and said that he never made no identification of me prior to my arrest. So how did I become a suspect? Right. Which one is it? Right. Three different opinions about one identification. Now, who should you believe the detective who was saying that he positively identified me as the person that robbed them? The district attorney who was saying that the witness said that I look like the individual, but he will be able to identify me if he see me in person or the witness who said that he never made no identification when the police came to his house on numerous occasions. Who should we believe? This guy, he didn't know me. The only thing that he knew, which he told the police, was that the guy was dark-skinned and stocky. That probably describes half of your neighborhood. When they asked him, well, how tall is this guy? He don't know. Is he taller than you? I don't know. Is he shorter than you? I don't know. Did he have a beard? I don't know. Did he have a mustache? I don't know. Well, you didn't see him. What do you know? He was dark-skinned and stocky. They showed him the tape. And on the tape, you can't make the features out of the individuals, the two perpetrators. You can't really make facial features out of anybody on the tape. But the perpetrators had on hats and hoodies and three-quarter length coats. And he stated that he couldn't see these individuals. He didn't know what the person looked like. He don't know if they had a beard, mustache, anything. He was just dark and stocky. So when you look at the tape, all you see is shapes in sizes. That's not enough. He couldn't even identify himself on the tape during trial. The district attorney had to reference something of what he had on. Wait, hold on. <laughs> the witness this tape was so grainy that the guy couldn't identify him himself. Yes, when the district attorney asked him to point to himself on the tape, he pointed to someone else. Wow. And then the district attorney says, um, Something like this. Is that you with the uh, checkerboard shirt or who's who's in the checkerboard shirt or something of that effect? Right, so he let him. Right. Let him to basically say, oh, and then that's me standing right here. OK, I've heard enough about that. Now
0: we know that's completely unreliable and out that should have been out the window right off the bat. Uh, one of the things that sticks with me is the idea that Detective Calabrese claimed that he could recognize
2: you from a security tape because he could recognize your walk. Yeah. I believe that was the linchpin that sealed my fate because he got on the stand and, and he pointed me out in court and he said, this is the guy, and they asked him how he knows and he says that he could tell that it was me because of how I walked and the tape doesn't show the perpetrator from his waist down. And they showed this tape in court. But yet, you know, I believe that that was the nail in the coffin for me because he's an officer, they have a tape, and people believe. Even when I was appealing, and I know that these judges never viewed the tape, but because of the language and the dialogue in the trial transcript, they even denied certain of my appeals because they saying, you were clearly seen on the tape. The
0: idea that anyone could identify anyone else, short of someone who does have a physical, you know... Impairment for what? Impairment, exactly. is what I was looking for. Is preposterous. I mean, the fact that they would even present that as evidence is ridiculous. But they did, and the consequences are not funny at all. They're very real. So there's there's that, and then there's the fact that you know we know we know what happened at the trial. That you know your brother was not allowed to testify. That is correct um, because your lawyer didn't submit his name on the witness list. That is right. Uh, had he been able to, we don't we know we'll never know what he would have said in the moment, but there's a realistic chance that he might have said something that could have exonerated you. Well,
2: at that time, my opinion and belief is that he wanted to come forward, and he did come to court to testify. And what I realized later is that my lawyer sent him home. When they started to question my parents about my brother and his whereabouts, they answered truthfully that he was here, came to court today to testify, And the district attorney stopped the proceeding and asked for a sidebar so they could discuss certain things, which the stenographer records. And at this sidebar, the district attorney wanted to bring up my lawyer on charges for lying about the whereabouts of my brother because early that morning he said he don't know where my brother was. He never seen them. He never met them. And then it was discovered later, the same day, that my brother was at his office that morning, and he sent them home. Wow, that's a big lie. You know, and it's in the trial transcripts. I'm not making it up. And it's he didn't—he didn't forget that he saw your brother that day. No, no. I mean, because it was right. It was early that morning, and trial was on, and my brother came to testify. At that time, I believed the best. Now I understand why a person would be apprehensive for coming forward and trying to tell the truth about what really took place or who was involved or things of that nature. Yeah, I mean,
0: he's he's your, uh, your little brother. You know, he must have had uh, a lot of conflicted emotions. I can't imagine being in his place. He's trying to save his own life. At the same time, you know, he's got, I'm sure, a lot of guilt about putting you in this situation in the first place. Because you talk about how you never would have been in the system if you hadn't have done certain things when you were younger. Mm-hmm. But you also would have never been in this situation if your brother hadn't have been involved in this thing in the first place.
2: I think that um, I set a bad precedent for my brother. I believe I was part of the influence. Now, I don't know if he looked up to me, but I believe that some of my actions of friends that I had that was around probably also rubbed off on him. Unfortunately, I wasn't. Around for him when he started to engage in activities and pick certain people as friends that I could have probably say, you know, those those are the guys you shouldn't think. Because what I tried to do was distance myself from everyone that was in my neighborhood at that point in time when I started to clear my life up. I mean, you basically took the fall for your brother. Well, I wouldn't say that I took the fall. They gave it to me. Right. Your
0: last hope was that your lawyer was going to do a good job representing you and that the truth was going to come out.
2: That's correct. And you were going to go back and get on with your life. But in fact, your lawyer was compromised. Um. Yes. As it seems, I mean, he was kind of like conflicted in between his duties as a lawyer to me and also to the people that were paying him to represent me. And the people that were paying him were your parents. Yes.
0: Uh, It's almost like they had a Sophie's Choice. They had to choose what they did choose. I don't
2: know if they had to choose to save one child. For me, it is basically, and this was never spoken, this is just my thoughts as I got a little older and probably start to piece things together, that, you know, he had a past. You know, he was in trouble before. Maybe he could handle this, and we would support him. But my brother, he's the baby. And... You know, the cops wasn't looking for him. They already gave him a clean slate and said they didn't want him. Even the district attorney said that they had nothing to convict him on. So they looked for the easy choice, the person that had the record. If we can't get his brother, then we're going to get him.
0: If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use
2: promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes,
1: fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you are a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher, see
5: Time is a luxury for us, especially if you're a mom. That's why we need a skincare routine that's easy, fast, and gives us results. From serum sets to the always sold out Retinol Alternative TBT cream, you'll find your perfect skincare match. Dime has over 2 million happy customers, and their product reviews are literally five stars. Love your skin again. Go to DimeBeautyCO.com for 20% off with code GET DIME. That's DimeBeautyCO.com, code GET DIME for 20% off.
0: You served um, 23 years. 23 years in maximum security prisons in yes. New York State. Yes. Was there a a, a worst moment,
2: uh, and was there a best moment? I mean, I had a lot of, not a lot of bad moments, but there, there's, there's a few. One of my worst moments was when I was in Green Haven in 2009, 10. I was in college. I was taking um, Christian ministry, human services, um, theology course. I was working in the barber shop, And this particular day I was coming from study hall, got, have my books and I'm going back to my cell. And I saw a crate and I was like, let me take the crate and put my school books in, because if anything happened to the school books, I have to pay for them. This is an old maximum security prison, so they have leaks and water's dripping all over the place. Sometimes your toilet overflow, your sink overflow. So long story short, the officer sees me with the crate, tell me to put it back. I can't have it, and I complied. Supposedly, he he must have spoke to another officer because another officer calls me back and started going crazy on me. Like, what are you touching here? You know, don't effing this, don't effing that. And, you know, I just stood there. I figured, you know, okay, he got his buddies here. I'm going to just listen to him, you know, comply. And, you know, hopefully, you know, I can go to my cell and lock in. And that wasn't the case. You know, so after he started to berate me about, you know, touching stuff in his unit and all this other stuff, I said, okay, you know, I'm sorry. You know, here's the crate. And I turned to leave. And I think at this point in time, he felt like I was dismissing him, you know, or I left without his authority saying, "Okay, you go. And he took offense to me, turning to leave. And he jumped on me. They beat me up. You see my elbow? Mm -hmm. My left elbow? Yep. It's got a giant knot in it. Right. My shoulders still hurt to this day. They beat up my elbows, they beat up my shoulders, they beat me up, they dragged me to the box, and they tried to charge me with assault. And that was, like, for me, the worst day because everything that I was doing, I never had no physical altercations while I was in with inmates or officers, anything of that nature, and I'm fighting my case. And the only thing that's coming to my mind is that Maybe I have an opportunity to get out of the prison for my case. But if they try to convict me for assault on the staff, which mostly everybody gets convicted of, you know, I just see my lights go out. It's your word against officer words. And more than one officer is going to say that you didn't what you didn't do. And it's funny to me because it's like I'm saying to myself, like, God, how does stuff in. Keep happening to me and my parents, they're so religious that, you know, they would hit you with you haven't submitted to God yet. You haven't let go. You're being tested. You're going through the fire. And, you know, I cried like a baby because I seen my lights go out. And maybe this was also the opportunity that I seen God working in my life. (laughs) Because. Subsequently. Guys that knew me, that locked on the company with me, they had wrote the attorney general office, the inspector general. They had wrote prison legal services. And I never knew that people probably watched me or cared about me like that. I'm talking about inmates, hardened criminals or whatever. And um, the inspector general, one of the inspector generals came to see me and I had written to them again um because one of the guys inside the shoe area had told me listen you need to write these people you need to write this person da 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 so I was getting a, advice from individuals of who I have to write who I have to contact to try to get from underneath this and um so I wrote them as well and when they came to see me you know we talk he says well we have to do our investigation and stuff of that nature and then they came to see me and I guess this is the first time in my life that I could say that I've seen the hand of God. Because when he called me and they interviewed me, he says, um, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that we're not going to charge you with assault on staff because I've read all the reports that came in. I read the police reports and I read... Not just your report, but I got several letters written from other inmates who have witnessed what took place. And I know that you didn't have contact with these individuals because they brought you to the box. And it says your story and their story adds up and none of the police stories adds up. But you have to go through the formalities. I still had the hearing to go to. And this is how corrupt. The Department of Corrections is I remember the officer that had the altercation with me that smacked me in my face and hit me with the sticks and all that and it was two other officers there but I didn't remember the two and the reason why I remember the one is because he was my company officer he's there every day the officer that comes in the hearing was not the officer that I that hit me or I had the altercation with it was somebody else and We're going through the formalities and questioning the officer and stuff like that. So the officer said that we were standing right shoulder to right shoulder. And I took my left hand and punched him on the left side of his face. That caused him to bust his head on the pipes and bust his head open. And when I started to play, if we stand the right shoulder to shoulder and I hit him with my left hand on the left side of his face, how is that possible? It's I not. would have to go over, It's not come back and hit him. And, you know, so, so I asked the officer to demonstrate this punch. Can you demonstrate how I hit you with my left hand on the left side of your face if we stand the right shoulder to right shoulder? I would like for you to demonstrate this. And the hearing officer said that there will be no demonstrations in here. So he never got to demonstrate. And I, you know, I objected and I told him that it's impossible that that can take place. Long story short, the officer that wrote the report or that they brought in that said he wrote the report. I asked him, did he see the police hit me? And he said, yes. So then I asked him, then why is it not written in the report that the police struck me? The lieutenant looks and he's like, I said, it's not in the ticket, it's not in the two from reports, it's not in any document that was given to me. So the lieutenant asked the CO, why is that? And maybe at this time he was afraid. I don't know what it is, but I believe at this point in time, this is when I seen God worked in my life and he tells the truth. He says, I didn't write the report. The lieutenant said, you didn't write the report? He said, no, I didn't write the report. He said, who wrote the report? He said, Sergeant such-and-such wrote the report. He said, where was the sergeant when the incident happened? He wasn't there. The sergeant wrote the report, made another officer sign it, and said in the hearing, as the officer who witnessed what took place, And knew nothing about it. Case closed. And they dismissed the case.
0: Amen to that. Um, Or you might not be here now. So, and we know now that you paroled. And I want to get to that because that's a a really um, extraordinary story in and of itself. I think it says a lot about what the parole board really thought about your claims of innocence. But before we get to that, I want to talk about what was going on on the outside because there was a guy in the neighborhood. I mean, can
2: we mention his name? Well, for legal purposes, you know, I wouldn't like to mention his name because my case is still being reviewed by the Conviction Review Unit. So, but this individual was a childhood friend of mine. We had, um, haven't seen each other in years. And he had moved away from the neighborhood and when he came back to the neighborhood, he was looking, you know, for old friends and, you know, subsequently he was looking for me and, Heard that I was in prison, so he wanted to know why, and, and the whole story came out, and he couldn't believe it. You know, he took it upon himself to try to help me. How did he do that? Well, the individual who actually committed a crime used to see him all the time, and because he's still living in the neighborhood, mostly people that knew both of us, he would ask them, you know, how they felt about him. Was he still, you know, like, welcome, or they still had love for him? knowing that I was in prison serving time for a crime that he committed. And my friend, he was like he couldn't believe this and he's like this guy just keep saying that he 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 did it, he did it and he's the reason why you in prison. You know, he wrote me a letter, I showed you the letter that he wrote and he took it upon himself to to record this individual to tape him saying the same things about me being in prison for a crime he committed. And he even went as far as that he used to... He does security, bouncing work, because he's six eight, three hundred 300-something pounds. Mm. And this is God again in my life. He so happened to be working, doing security, at a spot where Detective Calabrese, the leading detective in my case, was also working. What's the odds of that? Mm. Pretty long. And... He spoke to Calabrese about the case and told him that he had the wrong person in prison for the crime. And what Calabrese say? Calabrese just told him, tell his brother to come forward and he can get out. That was his words. Wow. See, because Calabrese knew. And he had told me as much when he brought me in. You know, because he was like, where's your brother? Where's his friends? And. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not my brother's keeper. You know, I don't live with my brother. I live with my wife. But he didn't care about that. And, you know, once things start to unravel in the conviction review unit and they start to review my case, they reached out to him two to three weeks after they reviewed my case. And next thing you know, self-inflicted wound somewhere in his car, you know, it took his own life.
0: Yeah, it seems like his conscience may have gotten to him. We'll never know um, because he didn't leave a note or anything, right? But the timing seems really um, to be... Suspicious. Yeah, I mean, the conviction review unit starts looking into your case. It's inevitable that they're going to find out what happened because the conviction review unit in Brooklyn, I can say this, they don't fuck around. These guys are under the leadership of Eric Gonzalez and before that, Ken Thompson. They are committed... To finding and identifying and, and resolving wrongful conviction cases. And they've been doing it and yes. walking the walk. And so once they took over reinvestigating your case, yeah. uh, Detective Calabresi must have known that some of his uh, misdeeds
2: were going to become public. Yes. He did everything from interviewing the witnesses to getting the fillers for the lineups, conducting the lineup. I mean, nobody else did anything. His name is on all the reports. So the guy who holds the key is dead now. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com hypergig for details.
5: Time is a luxury for us, especially if you're a mom. That's why we need a skincare routine that's easy, fast, and gives us results. Plus, what if your products had thousands of five-star reviews? Were natural and affordable? Well, say hello to Dime Beauty. Dime Beauty is clean, high-end skincare that is affordable and it really works. Not sure where to start? I highly recommend the Work System. It's everything you need in one powerful package. Take out the guesswork with a proven routine that includes a gentle yet effective cleanser, a super skin toner, two incredible serums, and two luxurious moisturizers. See what everyone is raving about. From serum sets to the always sold out retinol alternative TBT cream, you'll find your perfect skincare match. Dime has over 2 million happy customers and their product reviews are literally five stars. Love your skin again. Go to DimeBeautyCO.com for 20% off with code GET DIME. That's Dime Beauty code GETTIME for 20% off.
0: You went to the parole board. Yes. And you did exactly the opposite of what all the smartest people you knew or the most the wisest people, I should say, were advising you to do, right?
2: I'm not going to lie, you know, I was very apprehensive and, and rustled with it. You know, if my wife was here, she would tell you, you know, because... Knowing what I know now, I I had told her and I told her before that if I had a chance to do this all over again, I probably would have copped out to something less. Right. So what I was going to say is when you go to the parole board, the general
0: rule, and this is with very, very rare exceptions, the parole board wants to hear you express remorse that for the correct. crime, whether you committed it or not. They don't know whether you committed it. They don't have time to reinvestigate it. In New York state, the parole board is reviewing 10,000 cases, around 10,000 cases a year. And there's only somewhere between 12 and 19 people for the entire state in panels of three. So they have a few minutes to look into your case. They're not, they don't have time to go through it, even like we're doing now. So it would be great if they did, but they don't. They're only human beings. They only, you know, they don't have so much time in a day. So- the logical thing to do for somebody like you, who's desperate to get out and get back with your family and get back on, you know, to your life, is to just plead guilty, and then they're most likely going to say, "Okay, well, you've served twenty three years, and you've done, you know, ministry and all this other stuff in prison. Yeah, you you can go home now." But you didn't.
2: No, and I mean, I, I wrestled with it. I prayed about it because I want to go home. You know, what should I do? I mean, even though all these years I'm telling them I didn't commit the crime, now I'm up for parole. What do I do? Do I go in there and um, put on a show and say that I'm remorse and I'm sorry and that, you know, you know I, I don't know what to say but the truth, and I wrestle with it. And I mean, like, people is telling me don't go in there and tell them that you didn't do it. You're go- they're going to hit you. They're going to give you more time. And I said, well, I'm going in there and I'm going to tell them what I've been telling them since the beginning. I didn't commit the crime, but I understand why it's possible for an individual like me to be considered for a crime such as this. You know, and I'm going to give them my story about my past, how I came to be here today and what I've done since I was incarcerated and what I plan to do when I get out. And for that whole 10 days after that, I had to wait to get the results. Seven to 10 days, it was the worst week of my life. No sleep. No sleep. Because that whole week, I already felt, because the way that they spoke to me inside the parole board, I felt that they wasn't going to release me. My counselor gives me the envelope. I open it, and to be honest, my eyes are teared up. Cause I'm and I'm looking for the worst. And it's sad to say I'm looking for denial. I'm just looking for any word with a D. For denial, refuse, whatever. And I, I didn't see and my counselor's like, um, you okay? I said, Yeah, I just um I can't find the decision. So he's like, Well, give it to me. And he highlights it. He knew before. And he gave it back to me. And I can't believe it. They let me go. And I'll be lying out of there. You know, call my family and, and tell them. And um, they was uh, overjoyed. But it was it's still a lot now just thinking about it. Yeah, I can't imagine. Nobody can imagine that hasn't been through it. Uh-huh. You know, that was best moment for me in prison that and and learning some stuff about myself because you know like i I became the director of the use assistant program and i used to um mentor teens they used to bring um high school kids in and i used to speak to them about about my life story about how i end up serving a life sentence for a crime i didn't commit and how easy it is for you to find yourself in situations like this by the company that you keep and choices that you make and The brochure that I penned had the title, you know, you never get a second chance for a first impression. It's been an extraordinary uh, experience for
0: me, getting to know you and um, learning about your story. Of course, you know, I thank you for coming in and sharing it, and I think that through your words, it's going to inspire a lot of people to keep fighting whatever they're up against. And now... It's time for my favorite part of the show. Fans of the podcast know that this is uh, the time when I turn off my microphone and just sit
2: back and leave your microphone on for closing arguments. I guess the one of the most things that I could possibly say is for is for jurors because district attorneys is going to be them. They, they trying to win cases. Officers are trying to lock people up. But as a juror, it's your job to discern the truth, to find the truth. And sometimes I guess they get more clouded by what took place as opposed to what is the truth. And so emotions come into play with everything as opposed to rationale. And that's why you can find individuals such as myself in positions like this where you can do time for a crime you didn't commit because people's emotions are more tied up in the event but not trying to find the actual truth when they sit on jurors, on jury. I believe part of that, outside of what the district attorney did, detective did, the jurors are the ones who has the final say. And if they don't use rationale to decipher the truth from the garbage that is being spewed out there that's why there's so many of us in prison wrongfully anyone out there that's going through a situation such as this just continue fighting no one knows what the future holds and there's hope
0: don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts it really helps And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardus. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One.
5: From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
3: I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments, Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.